0: Papasty podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. And uh, you, you're, uh, where paths have crossed um, many years ago, so probably known a bit about each other for over a decade. Um, deep dive into the fact your founder story and how Level Water started how things are now um and then a little bit about what the future holds as well would be would be fantastic um in in the making of this podcast actually i was in touch with you and you said to me that you were about to go through or or currently having back surgery is that right (laughs) yeah that's right i had a um i had a discectomy six weeks ago and and also in the making of this podcast, I did a bit of googling because you know I, I know a bit about your history and past, but came across having I think you just launched the charity probably two years previously, but you you were involved in a serious um, motorbike accident, is that right?
1: Yeah, it was actually a it was a push bike. Um, I think the probably the newspaper article you found mentions a motorbike, but no, I was I was out training for triathlon and um, lost control of my bike. I don't really know what happened, but I ended up with my helmet split in two and uh, four broken vertebrae, a couple broken ribs, broken elbow. Um, and, I, you know, I, maybe I need to look after my back a little bit better. But, um, no, it's, it's funny because that one I really walked away from, you know, but by six weeks later, almost back to normal. Um, I think eight weeks later, I'd run 20 miles. Um, this time I'm going a little bit steadier. And, uh, you know, I really don't want to hurt my back again of just um you know taking my time strengthening myself i mean for the last year i haven't really been able to lift my kids
0: stand walk sit
1: for more than a few minutes
0: so um, right yeah it would be really really nice to be able to be active again yeah and that's constant is that you're living with that pretty much all the time
1: i was i mean i think the surgery has worked but the path Mm. back is just going to be a very cautious one
0: yeah oh fantastic that's good good to hear um so it struck me that actually and so you'd started um liver water in in 2012 so the accident was sort of well, not quite two years later was it after having formed the this disability disability charity
1: yeah that's right yeah and I guess it's um you know it's it's not comparable but it was quite interesting going through that experience myself of not being able to you know, kind of do the things that I could normally do quite easily. And, you know, I've um, been quite physically limited in, in what I could do or how I could do things or what help I needed. Um, so it's quite eye opening and it kind of um, doubled down my commitment to the charity and to helping disabled children have great access to sport because yeah, I really, really missed it.
0: Mm. And it kind of struck me actually when I was reading that article, even though it was wrong, and they had you on a motorbike, not a bike, um, was that you couldn't exercise for a year after the accident. And you, I think you you state in there that that really emphasised how important it was to you as a human being that um, you know that experience of sport, um, and and really that's what Liberal Waters is about, isn't it? So it's it's children who often wouldn't have access to be left behind because of a disability because of a physical impairment and you've created this charity which um has grown and grown and grown and it's giving those children access would be good just to give me sort of you know how many children that is and just a bit of context of how you operate would be great
1: sure yeah let let me do both um so i guess the first thing is is that you know the, the point you make about fairness which is just that Disabled children in the UK are about one third as likely to be act outside of school as, as children who don't have disabilities. Um, and, you know, I guess that is why we do what we do, because both my chairman and I grew up playing sports and we feel that playing sport has had a fairly central um, influence on who we've become as adults. And just to realise that there's this whole cohort of children who are being left behind was shocking. Um And what we realized fairly quickly is that swimming is a fabulous sport for all children, um, but particularly for disabled children. um, And that the problem with swimming is group swimming lessons. You know, that often our children either won't be invited into group lessons um, or they won't keep up in group lessons and they need a little bit more attention or support to learn the basics. But actually once they can swim, We can then help them integrate into groups with other children, whether they have disabilities or not. And our kids can continue to learn like everybody else and and have access to to swimming and to sport for the rest of their lives. And we started, as you said, in 2012 at one swimming pool in London um, as a test, as a pilot, where we basically we we work in partnership with the pool. Um, And so we approached the pool and said, look, you really should be providing lessons for these kids. We'll help you do it. We'll provide some funding. We'll ask you to provide a discount on the lesson cost. We'll train your teachers, find the kids, um, oversee the program and help transition them off and into groups. And since then, we've changed almost nothing about our delivery model. So, you know, something that was very important to us from the start is that the, the child is a member of the swimming pool and they receive their lesson from the pool and from the normal teachers at the pool our job to facilitate that happening so we're there to bring a few things together the teacher training the price reductions to find the kids to make sure it's working but actually the pool is delivering the lesson the family are customers of the pool and the other thing that lets us do is to scale pretty quickly because mm-hmm. you know, we don't have to hire teachers hire pool time have managers overseeing it deal with staff problems none of that that's all done in partnership with the swimming pools and so, over the last eight years, we've scaled from that one pilot there to we now work at 90 pools across the UK, with about 300 teachers. We provide 500 children every week a one-to-one lesson, so that's about 20,000 lessons a year. Um, so, I guess that's a that's a brief overview of kind of the operational model and the scale we're at. Yeah,
0: fantastic. And so, when you guys started this charity, it was it, it, you talk about in some of your materials that it was. You know, a reaction or it was part of the legacy of the 12, 2012 Olympics in London, which I remember is hugely successful. I was in London at the time. I remember the Paralympics being massive. Um, and, and was that really the, where was the sort of moment for you? Where was the impetus? You know, where the initial funding coming from? What was that kind of light bulb?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, the first part of that conversation was actually my chairman and myself literally sitting in a pub talking about how much we love sport. Um, he was a very good tennis player. I grew up swimming. And, you know, just, just that conversation, we, we were both sitting there saying, we really want to do something in our lives that helps more children play sport um, because it's been such a central part of our lives. And, and, you know, as I said before, who we are as adults. And, No, the thought wasn't much deeper at the time. I think now I could talk for an hour just on the difference that sport makes to children growing up. Um, But I guess we felt something at the time about the power and the value of sport. And the intersection with the Paralympics and and the 2012 Olympic Games was was just fortuitous. It was very, very lucky. um, Because I think that really marked a moment, certainly in the UK and, and to some extent internationally, where the public understanding of disability sports shifted and you know for the first time ever at an olympic games all the tickets sold out to the paralympics you know people were, were clamoring for tickets to, to the, all the paralympic events um and i think people you know on, on a sort of larger public scale started to understand just the quality of the, the paralympic athletes um the importance of sport and you know, that, that people with disabilities can participate in sport and you know, do amazing things in sport in, in exactly the same way that people without disabilities can.
0: Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, I remember at the time really strongly that you know, Channel 4 put all their creative might behind some very cool um, adverts, which really, I think, really empowered disabled athletes. And took it to you know just just that um those ads alone but also the kind of fame started to knock on the door of a lot of um disabled athletes which was absolutely superb and it kind of just helped take it to the next level i believe
1: yeah i mean if you haven't seen it i would recommend everybody just goes and searches the internet for channel four paralympic adverts um i think the series was called we're the superhumans yeah and i mean you've given me about it because it really does just shift your perspective immediately on how physical and how athletic um, that cohort of of Paralympic athletes are Um, so no I think they did an absolutely fabulous job Um, you know I think honestly the British public and you know the, the London crowds did an absolutely fabulous job and You know, London won that Olympics really on the promise of delivering um, a legacy. You know, the the catchphrase of the Olympic bid was inspire a generation. And, you know, I I think I, as with a lot of people in sport, find the word inspiration a slightly funny one. Um, You know, it's a little bit cheap and easy to inspire somebody and actually to create change for the long term is a much harder thing and, and requires a much deeper intervention. Um, But what London, I think, has done a remarkable job on is delivering a legacy of helping more people get and stay active, you know, right across the population in different ways. And whilst our charity um, wasn't created as a result of the Olympic Games, it's absolutely been powered by the Olympic Games and the impact the Olympics had on and the Paralympics on you know the British public perception of of sport as a whole and sport for disabled people yeah
0: absolutely and so in terms of seed funding so you had the will. you've been in the pub with your chairman and a friend uh you had this desire you you had skills you know like your education had been about science and uh sport science and, and sort of marketing which is a great combination for for starting, launching and then scaling a, a charity of this nature. Um, how did you go about those early days? Sure. Well, I, I must say we were
1: massively fortunate um, in that my, my chairman, he works in, in the city in London um, and he's a, a very good fund manager there. And so at the time we were 32 and he was starting to think about how he was going to give his money away to create more good in the world. Um, And so the, you know, the massive advantage that we've had um, against, you know, every other parent of a child who is sat in my position thinking, I really want fair and good swimming lessons for my child, was that I could work on this full time from the start. And my chairman has been a major donor to this charity for eight years. Um, And we've now also started a second charity together um, in tennis, which he delivers with a, a Davis Cup player. Um, so that made a huge difference because it meant rather than us, you know, solving a local problem on a local level um, with some local families, we set out from day one to build a national solution. And that influenced, you know, the fact that I could work full time from the start. It influenced our delivery model. It influenced the type of funding we looked for. So, um, you know, effectively, he, he has meant that I've been able to work full time at this for eight years. Um, And in those early days, any funding we won didn't need to cover me or my time or my salary, but could go directly into the programmes, which again has made a a huge, huge difference. And then I think there were were kind of two steps in our evolution. Um, You know, the next thing we started doing was a combination of applying for local grants. So the first money we actually got in other than, than Stuart's donation was from the council in Wandsworth and from Swim England. And the two of those together funded our first pilot um, project in Putney in London. And so, you know, the council put in a few thousand pounds, Swim England, uh, the national governing body for swimming here, put in a few thousand pounds as well. And those two together meant that we could go out and find a dozen kids, train some teachers in Putney and start paying for their lessons. And as soon as we could see that was working, uh, I had a conversation with my trustees as to, you know, basically where next like this model looks very repeatable we'll go and find local money we'll go and find some national money and you know i was i was set very early on to the belief that our income where possible should come from basically from event challenge fundraising so you know it's it's a funny world because when we write a grant application we're effectively competing against every other charity like us and we're making the argument that you should fund swimming, don't fund football. Um, and it's a zero-sum game. You know, there's a fixed amount of money available in the grant world. And so if we win it, someone else loses it. Whereas, you know, if I say, um, and actually the first thing we did was this, we said, come down to a lake and rake, race Mark Foster, World Record Holder Olympic swimmer, um, over a, a one-mile swim. Now, Mark's a 50-metre swimmer, so a mile for him is like, an untold amount of distance. And he's, <laughs> he's actually not remarkably talented over that distance. So the offer is you can come and race this world record holder and probably beat him. And so we had like 20 people come down and do that the first year and they raised a few thousand pounds. But the second big step in our, our evolution then was a partnership with the Outdoor Swimming Society. And they run, I mean, c- kind of the London Marathon of open water swimming. You know, the London Marathon here is like the biggest mass participation event in the UK. Like everybody wants to do it. Um, I think the ballot's oversubscribed 10 or 20 times. You can't get a ticket for love nor money. The, the Dart 10K, run by the Outdoor Swimming Society, is the same thing for swimming. You know, 10 equivalent of the marathon. Uh, the Dart River is absolutely stunning. It's a point to point swim down the river. So they have to bus you back up to the start. It's quite a complicated event to deliver. But we got 100 tickets to this event and, you know, I think paid 100 pounds for them. And everyone who swam
0: it raised 400. Now, that's quite an easy model. But... Um, in terms of your for a small charity, you've got some amazing ambassadors, uh, some, some big names. You talked about Mike Foster uh, and there's also Rebecca um, But but there's a few others as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, Mark and Becky are, are very well-known across the UK. Um, you know, they present all the swimming when, when the Olympics or other major games are on, and, and they, they're great fun to watch, and obviously, you know, both fabulous athletes in their own right. Um, but we also have uh, Sasha and Nairi Kindred as ambassadors, who are the golden couple of British Paralympic swimming, and, and I would guess probably have about 15 Paralympic medals between them. Um, and obviously, they're massively supportive of our cause and the work that we do. And so, you know, since 2012, um, I mean, I, I used to swim with them 20 years ago uh, in Bath. And since we started in 2012, they've been very happy and supportive of us in, in every way that they can. And,
0: and that is a good segue for me to go back to, you know, you're, you're at university, you're doing sports marketing in Bath, which is a fantastic sports university. You've, you've, you've got um you end up i think you end up in St andrews is that right doing a marketing masters yes that's right yeah. and did you did you envisage founding growing being being a charity guy or did, did you envisage a kind of um you know heavily profitable <laughs> lifestyle where uh, you'd end up you know starting a business what was the dream for you
1: well what an excellent question mark i'm still not quite sure um No, I guess, I mean, I studied sports science at university um, because I was interested in sport and the thought didn't go any further than that. Um, My degree was split into three parts. It was sports psychology, sports physiology, and sports biomechanics. And I always loved the biomechanics. You know, I I honestly thought I was going to end up doing um, video analysis of people's swimming strokes. I think I'd still quite enjoy doing that. Um, But I I went on, I started working in the city in London and it wasn't for me. Uh, So I went back and did this master's in marketing which really suits me very well and, and spent a lot of my career somewhere in between the two um, as a, a growth advisor to big companies. So helping with strategy, marketing, um, developing new products and propositions for customers. And I think actually, you know, more than my education is that experience which has helped the charity because having, you know, worked on probably 20 or 30 different um, growth questions and problems for, you know, companies, charities, government departments, then, you know, I I guess I've been able to bring some of that experience to the charity and think about how we, you know, what our growth challenges are and how we can set ourselves up for success in the long run. Do
0: you feel like a full-purpose career, which which is what you've ended up as, has meant that you've had to miss out on other things in life?
1: No, I don't. No, I don't at all. Um, I mean, I think I've always, I've always really enjoyed the work that I've done. And when I haven't, I've cut very quickly. So my first ever job was in investment banking, and I think it was just, it was clear to me and them almost immediately that it wasn't going to last very long. So I was there for six months. Um, but you know, since then I've absolutely loved everything that I've done. And you know, now the work is fascinating. I think it, you know, it just ticks a huge box that. There's no question that what we're doing matters in the world and, and is making a difference to people. Um, and, you know, I, I also have kind of the, the upside of doing something that's quite entrepreneurial and that, you know, requires a bit of get up and go. And we feel like we're building something from scratch every day. Um, and then the, the other massive benefit of, of working the way we do is my team. That you know, I now have a small team around me, of, um, you know, both on the fundraising side and the delivery side. And they're all incredibly strong individuals at what they do and can work fairly independently. Um, so, for example, during the, the lockdown, during COVID, they were already working from home four days a week, um, you know, writing their own work plans and delivering their own targets and outcomes. Um, and so actually, we've been able to carry on very much the way we were before. So, no, I think, I mean, the answer to the purpose question is that it, it ticks a huge box to be doing something that you know makes a difference. Um, and there have been times in my career where I've been interested by the work I'm doing, but maybe less sure that it's making a change in the world. And now I just never stop to ask the question. It's, it's so clear.
0: Mm. And do you, those, you know, if someone asked you the question is, what's the difference between commerce and business and not-for-profit slash charity, what would be your answers to them?
1: Well, the first thing I would say is I think it's probably easier. So, um, you know, because we make a lot of our money through this fundraising model where, you know, I can buy a ticket for £100 to the most in-demand swim event in the world, sell it for 50 and make a £50 loss on the sale of it, and then they'll fundraise £400 on on the back end. Now, if you can show me a business model where we can do that, I think we'll all be retired next year. So, you know, I think there's, there's something hugely um, rewarding about just the level of support you get in the charity world, that as soon as, you know, I tell anybody what I do, the first response is, well, how can we help? You know, <laughs> that's fabulous. What an amazing thing to do. How can I help you? And so, you know, I, I think it's, it's just really rewarding that people are constantly coming to us just saying, we love what you do. We totally support it. We share your ambitions.
0: Um. Really enjoyed my conversation with Ian Thwaites tonight. Big respect for you, sir. Big thank you for coming on and uh, support the charity, levelwater.org. You donate in that way. Really tough time for charities at this, this time of the year um, with COVID having hit and a lot of lost income. We need to ensure that uh, these organisations survive and then thrive when they come out of this and are there for all those children who are unable to access or keep up with normal mainstream swimming and uh, live water, do their very best to give access to you know, children with disabilities and uh, life-limiting conditions. So thanks for listening and we'll speak soon. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. I hope you like what you're hearing. Please subscribe and leave a review.